Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Knives! This is the story of Jim Bowie, of the Bowie Knife, part two. Behind the Bastards is Robert Evans, the podcast of bad people. Talk about him. Co-host, Billy Wayne Davis! Hey, everybody. Billy, I have learned that you don't actually need to order words in any meaningful way. If you just make sure all of the important words are kind of jumbled up into a salad, people tend to get what you're saying. Are you saying with the right emotion? You're damn right. Yep, yep, yep. So, why even have grammar? That's the question, and the answer is, there's no reason to have grammar. Yes, there is. And it's it's cowardly. I love grammar. This is upsetting yeah. me. So There, there are reasons. No. Robert, yes, please. probably. So, in our last episode, we talked about the famous sandbar fight, which is really just a giant shit show, uh, and probably would have been pretty funny to watch. Um, it was hilarious to listen about. Yeah, up until that guy got his gut spilled all over the sandbar, it was pretty funny. Um, I still thought that was that part. I mean, you know where you're getting into. You know, in some fairness, Jim Bowie's a monster because of the slave stuff. In that fight, he did say, don't shoot at me, you rascal. Like, he gave him he proper warning, and that guy kept shooting at him. <laughs> like, yeah, he did. <laughs> he did, he did. And that is the general rule. If somebody has a giant knife and you're going to shoot at him, you best... You best deal with them real fast with your gun, because if you don't, they've got a real big knife, and they'll be angry at you. That is, I had a, my middle school basketball coach told me he carried a 12-gauge in Vietnam because an M16 just pissed him off, and I was like, okay, well, that's, we're at basketball practice, but that's good to know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's really not helpful in any part of my life right now, but thank you for scaring a child. (laughs) Yeah, and that information has always stuck with me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in the days before body armor was common, in particular, stopping power was really... um, Anyway, that's just neither Mm -hmm. here nor there. He's not not wrong. He's not wrong. wrong. If you want to stop a man, it doesn't get much better than a 12-gauge shotgun. Unless you have a gigantic knife (laughs) like Jim Bowie. Uh, He may have had that, too. He probably did. Now... When we left our friend Jim, he had just disemboweled a man during an argument and been shot several times. He's and because not the United my States, he's my friend. He's not my friend. No, he's not. 
And because the United States has not changed at all since those days, this made him suddenly gigantically famous, and he became a living legend of the Wild West, like Wyatt Earp or Davy Crockett, or I have to assume, based on his name, Grizzly Adams. And I refuse to look up who Grizzly Adams was, so don't tell me if I'm wrong. He <laughs> took pictures, I think. I think, he, I think he fought grizzly bears with his bare hands because he had to defend orphanages. That's my headcanon for Grizzly Adams. His brother was good at taking pictures. Mm-hmm. Probably. Ansel. Yep. Ansel and Grizzly. So <clears throat> uh, once he'd healed from the sandbar fight, Jim Bowie re-entered polite society as a celebrity. The eyes of the nation followed him as he traveled through the Old West and got into even more fights. Now, most of the fighting credited to Jim Bowie never happened. And it's very possible that he never killed another person with his knife again. But there are, of course, numerous stories you can find about him getting into fights and killing two or three armed men with his gigantic knife. And almost all of these are tall tales, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, once you're famous for stabbing a guy to death, there's going to be a lot of other stories of you stabbing guys to death, even if you never stab another guy to death. That's just America. It's Keith Richards. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't do as many drugs as you'd you'd think, but he got the reputation, and it's just stuck with him. Well, that's what, in his book, he said, yeah, I just never corrected anyone. No, and why would you? Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, uh, it's all about personal branding, and Bowie knows how to brand himself well. So, uh, yeah, he he didn't probably. It's probable that he never killed another human being with his knife, um, but he c- continued to kill the shitload of people. Don't worry about that, Billy. He kept he, he kept killing people. That did not stop. Um, his brother John later wrote that after recovering from the sandbar fight, quote, Jim felt as though he had not been well used or properly treated by some of his political friends. And this, John Bowie says, is why Jim went to Texas. Now, in writing this, he left out about a year or so worth of crimes that he and Jim both committed. So, like, the 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 kind of frontier story that his brother tells is that, like, Jim got betrayed by some of his political friends, and so he went to Texas, and he leaves out, like, what actually happened. Um And what actually happened is that for the next year or so after the sandbar fight, he got back into conning people uh, over land. So basically, he would travel all across the frontier, buy up tracts of land or purchase options to to buy up tracts of land, and then he would sell that land to the highest bidder, hopefully for a profit. Now, this is called land speculation, and it's not illegal, um, but it was kind of slower than Jim Bowie was comfortable with. So he started forging options and land deeds and selling those too. Now, this is outright theft because he was just lying about land that he had no claim to, selling it to people and pocketing the money. But the internet didn't exist back then, and people usually weren't fast enough to catch him. Now, Jim went towards quite a lot of effort to affect these forgeries, even hiring actors to pretend to be landowners so he could then convince buyers that he was this person's representative so he could sell them land that he had no right to. So these were pretty elaborate cons. Wow. That's, yeah. Well, he had to have gotten caught. He got he constantly, constantly. He wasn't good at hiding it. People were just dumber back then and there was no internet. Yeah, now, he was like, I'm going to need an accomplice. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. Yeah. And the accom- he did need an accomplice, and his accomplices were usually Congress. <laughs> yeah. So he had friends in Congress um, who would help him basically by, like, pushing, you know, the local banks and stuff to, to, to recognize these deeds and stuff that he was, he was bringing forward. Um, and eventually he decided the best way for him to continue his scams and make a bunch of money was to run for a local congressional seat in Louisiana to, to basically get in power himself. And he worked at a deal with one of his friends who was already in Congress to basically take up that guy's seat once his term ended and run in the next election. But then his friend decided to run for re-election again, and Bowie got angry at him. And this is what his brother referred to as him not being properly treated by political friends. So mm. the col- congressional election that year actually went against his buddy and probably would have gone against Bowie, and he was left without any allies in Congress and without any way of easily continuing to swindle rubes into buying land he didn't already own. Over the course of 1828, all of Jim's many schemes collapsed, one after the other, leaving him at risk of becoming destitute, um, or at least if he'd actually bothered to pay any of the debts he'd accrued. The book Three Roads to the Alamo gives a good summary of the actual scale of the con Bowie was trying to work, and it's it's enormous. Quote, he had made a stunningly bold play at exploitation in all laying fraudulent claim to 80,000 acres in Arkansas and between 73,000 and 80,000 more in Louisiana. 
God. He, yeah. Oh my God. If he had succeeded, he would have been whole or part owner of 250 square miles of bayou and riverfront property and possibly another 200 square miles and 188 other Arkansas claims he had withdrawn, making him the largest landowner in the, re- uh, in the region and in his time, very possibly the largest private landholder in the United States. So... He would have been a millionaire if he'd succeeded in this, but he failed, and now he was all but broke by the end of 1828. So that's what leads him to Texas, is he has failed in a series of incredibly ambitious land cons. He winds up broke, and Texas is the best shot he has at getting a bunch more free land. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think it was going to be a pure of heart thing. No, no. So... And this is another part that's interesting to me. Mexico's government in my Texas history classes was always portrayed as cruel and oppressive um, at worst and kind of like absentee at best. And I later learned that one of the many one of the main reasons why white colonists hated the the Mexican government was that slavery was illegal in Mexico. <laughs> um, this was a part of it. Um, but also the Mexican government didn't really stop a lot of these white people from bringing in their slaves. They wanted Americans to move in because they had a lot of empty land and they needed people to kind of like hold it down and cultivate it and provide a tax base and stuff. Um, so a lot of them looked the other way at forced human bondage. Um, but it was still more difficult uh, to, uh, to to keep slaves there. But this was kind of overwhelmed by the fact that Mexico wanted settlers badly enough that they were willing to give huge amounts of land to anyone who was willing to pretend to be Catholic and agree to obey Mexican law. So for that small price, if you became a non-citizen settler in Texas, you got 177 acres to farm on and a whole league, 4,428 acres, to graze your cattle on. Even more land, up to 11 leagues, could be purchased for for a dirt-cheap price if the buyer was willing to become a Mexican citizen. So Jim Bowie read all this. I would do that now. Well, no, I wouldn't do that for Texas land. I mean... No, I know Texas, Texas too well. Yeah, not, exactly. Yeah. No, not, no, I'm talking about Mexico. Like, go yeah, I do that for part of Mexico for sure. Yeah. No, no, fuck. No, I do not want to go live in Texas. No, 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 no. no. So Bowie packed up his unreasonably large knife and he rolled to Mexico. His brother John unceremoniously noted that he, quote, disposed of his lands and Negroes before he set out because buying and selling people was, again, nothing at all to the men of the Bowie family. No. So, Yeah. Jim was 32 years old uh, when he finally made it to Mexico. And the most entertaining description I've heard of him in this period of time comes from historian J. Frank Doby. Quote, He found that reputation of his knife had preceded him. He stood six feet tall and was all muscle. He was pleasing in look, speech, and manner to both men and women, though it is said that he seldom smiled. Letters and other writing by him and Resin P. Bowie are in clear, sinewy English. After he had been in Texas a while, he spoke Spanish as well as French. He was not a ruffian, although he could be rough. He comprehended the cutthroats and gamblers of Natchez while he dined in patrician houses on the hill or sang in the theater. He was at home with bellowing alligators in the marches, with mustangs and mustangers on the prairies, and with lawyers who would circumvent God. In Texas, he fought Indians and Mexicans. And... <laughs> and Texans. <laughs> yeah. This is Dobie's article where he writes that is from 1957. Um, and you can tell that the attitudes on colonialism were a lot different by the fact that he just dropped, and he fought Indians and Mexicans. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, he's a good dude. This is not inaccurate, um, but it does leave out kind of the brutality of of what exactly Jim Bowie got up to. Um, Yeah, so here's how Jim's brother John uh, describes this massacre of a bunch of Native Americans that Bowie commits not long after getting to Texas. Quote, Uh, During the few years he spent in Texas, he had many strange and hazardous adventures, probably the most notable of which was the following. He and Resin Bowie, with nine others, went in search of a silver mine about 200 miles northwest of San Antonio. While on this expedition, they were attacked by about 150 Comanche Indians. James, being well acquainted with the habits and manners of these savages, soon perceived that they were on trail of him and his little party for the purpose of murdering or robbing them, so he availed himself of the first suitable place for defense. Now, John describes this as natives wanting to rob him. But he and Jim, but the reality is that he and like Jim and Resin Bowie had moved into Native American territory and were trying to steal their shit and they were carrying weapons. Um, he also describes the natives as Comanche, but they were Tawakoni, Waco, and Caddo. Um, and by any definition of the term I've ever heard during my youth in Texas, these natives were acting in self defense because, again, Bowie and his brothers 
were part of a posse of large armed men who had come onto their land to steal a bunch of silver. Yeah, we'll just judge on their recent past history, and I'm like, I'm going to go with the natives on this one. Yeah, yeah, and what followed was probably might have been the bloodiest single fight of the period between white settlers and natives, in the, at least in the history of Texas. Um, the natives, you know, a, a large group of them surround the little fort that they'd built in the rocks and open fire. They kill one of Bowie's men. Uh, Bowie, the Bowie brothers and their other men fire back repeatedly. And this continues for literally days. Like there's multiple days of gunfire. And by the time it's all over, 50 to 60 natives are dead along with a lot of their horses. Um, and it's hard to say if the death counts in this are anywhere near accurate um, because like white settlers would lie a lot about how many people they killed in firefights, but also they had access to much better guns. That said, given what happened at the sandbar fight, I don't know how much I trust the story of Jim Bowie about his accuracy in a gunfight. I don't know. It's hard to say, but probably a lot of people did die because they were in like a three day gun battle. So whatever. Yeah. He murders a bunch of people. Well, and he could have had like it could have been like a like a regulator situation where he picks up some people that are handy with the steel because he yeah. realizes he's not. And they're using rifles. You know, they're, these guys are like wielding like you know more accurate guns in this. The the gunfight they're using handguns, and like in this they're kind of shooting with like hunting rifles, which are more accurate and have rifled barrels and stuff most people will say 50 to 60 dead in the total fight. It's impossible to know for sure, but yeah. Yeah. So after the, the natives back off, Jim and his men flee back uh, to San Antonio. uh, And he immediately petitions the local government for petition to raise an expedition against the Tawakoni tribe. Because, you know, during this little invasion, he estimated they had 2000 horses. And he was basically like, I just got into a gunfight with these guys. And I think if you give me enough men, I can steal all of their horses to sell them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So he's a, he's a good dude. Is he's, what I'm saying. Yeah, he's, he's a hard worker. He's a, yeah. So, um, yeah, we don't actually know if this expedition ever happened. Um, it may well have. Uh, and Bowie is noted as having numerous other conflicts with Native Americans during this period, uh, all of which kind of involved around him rolling into their houses and stealing shit. Yeah. Um, but they're usually called expeditions by, like, the historians. Even in the 20th century, a lot of historians will call it, like, he he raised an expedition. And you're like, what was the expedition for? Well, he wanted to steal things from these people. <laughs> like, Valuables. That's my, I'm looking for valuables that yeah, people they, have. It's like even, you know, there's at least with like the Lewis and Clark expedition, there's like this, they were making maps and shit, right? Like there's criticisms to make of it, but they were, they did write some maps. Bowie is just taking things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So uh, Jim applied for and eventually received Mexican citizenship, which allowed him to buy 11 leagues of land. He also su- con- succeeded in convincing a number of Mexican citizens to sign over their options for purchasing land to him as well. And throughout this period, Jim Bowie continued to make the bulk of his money through an even mix of legitimate and fraudulent land sales. So again, at any given point in time, if you're wondering how is Jim making a living, he's he's pretending he's he's selling fake land to people. He's a land he's a real estate con artist. That is Jim Bowie's like secret to wealth. How very modern of him. Yeah, he has a lot in common with our president, aside from the fact that he was clearly willing to get into a fight. Oh, he'll get his hands dirty for sure. Yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely a better person than the president. Uh, he's also very good at spin, like yeah. calling stuff an expedition. Where you're like, nah, man, you're raiding villages. That's what yeah, you're, you're doing. Just, you're just raiding people. You're stealing yeah. their horses. Not, not expedition. You're like, Although okay. this this does make me think, if I could get fifty to a hundred people together and rob the Toyota dealership near me, we could just call it an expedition to get free Land Cruisers. Or that's if actually not Ford a bad dealership. Idea. You could call it an expedition to get expeditions. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like we'd be doing Ford a favor by taking expeditions away. I know. As I was saying that, I was like, <laughs> Ford would just be like, Ford would be like, someone got them. Someone came and took them. You guys. No, I, I, I really want to get down to an expedition. That's what we ought to do. Just, just, just rebrand shoplifting as an expedition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So uh, during this time, Jim Bowie became friends with the Mexican governor of Texas, a guy named Veramendi. And he worked at a deal with Veramendi by which he could marry the governor's daughter. So he signed a dowry with the Veramendi family, promising to pay his wife more than $15,000 in money and property that he absolutely did not have. Uh, he listed as collateral the fraudulent properties in Louisiana and in Arkansas that he'd never actually owned in the first place. Um, but he basically conned this governor into letting him marry his daughter, and then he immediately borrows $750 from his new family-in-law to take his new wife on a vacation to New Orleans. Um, <laughs> All right, I want to give you some money. Yeah, can I have some. Can I have some money? And your daughter. And your daughter. <laughs> yeah, I could. <laughs> so uh, Jim and his new wife were married on April twenty fifth, eighteen thirty one. She was nineteen years old, and he was thirty five years old. Although he listed his age as thirty on the marriage certificate. <laughs> weird. Very weird. Just a little vain. He's just Why a little vain. Why would you lie about your age on when it's technically know. legal? I mean, that makes me think if he's lying about his age, maybe she, her age was not actually 19. I don't know. Fucking age, her age wasn't accurate. I don't know. This is a different time. It's entirely possible he actually thought he was 30. Again, <laughs> that's true. That not a true. lot of official government's documents about when you came into the world at this point. And he's... Taken several guns to the head at this point, too. <laughs> yes, he, he's been hit in the head That's a number fair. of times. And remember, his his mom only taught him the alphabet. So numbers, probably not Jim Bowie's strong suit. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and a big part of why he got married seemed to be that getting hitched uh, to a Mexican, or getting hitched to anyone at all, entitled him to another 4,000 acres from the government. And since his wife was a rich girl, he was also entitled now to live at the Veramendi house, which was basically a palace, because he's, you know, he's the governor of Texas. Um, now, the sources I've read all tend to agree that he like was legitimately in love with his wife and that the Veramendi family treated him as a son. I have found no evidence to discount this, so I kind of have to assume that this was in fact the case, even though given all of the scams he got up to and the fact that he lied about the money he had to get a dowry, I'm very hesitant to give Bowie credit for anything, but I don't know. I, I, I have no evidence that he, he didn't truly care for this woman or for his adopted family. So... I got to say that. Um, and there's definitely evidence that the Veramendi family really cared about Jim. Uh, he was, quote, furnished with money and supplies without limit and was basically got to live as a rich boy for a while. Um, since he no longer needed to work, uh, he gave up his land conning and spent several blissful years living in a palace and occasionally going out on expeditions to steal gold and silver from native people, mainly just for fun. I was going to um, say, that's just like, it sounds like he just likes to go... Yeah, well, these are like steam. L. Ron Hubbard-style gold hunting expeditions, but with a higher body count. <laughs> well, so that we know of. That we know of. He was on one of these trips getting into gunfights with Native Americans when his wife, their two children, and his father and mother-in-law all died horrifically during a cholera outbreak. Um, so he's just like out camping and his whole family is wiped out by cholera in the space of a few days, uh, which fucks him up, right? That, that, that's hard to deal with <laughs> your whole family dying at the same time. Yeah. I feel like most people would, would, would have a little bit of trouble with that. And a lot of sources will claim that this is when Jim began to drink heavily. You know, he'd always had a tendency to party a little hard sometimes, but kind of after this point, you see him increasingly sort of sinking into straight up alcoholism. Probably change the way he drank. Yeah. 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 That seems fair to say. If you want to protect your family from cholera, the FDA guarantees that all of these products and services will render them immune. So you can drink any kind of ditch water you want. Just get out there, buy some products, and go suck it up ditch water. Here's a product. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. 
The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. I hope you're all enjoying all this ditch water. It's good stuff. Keep buying the products. I don't know. Sometimes this is where we go. This is, this is the joke that I made, and now we're returned, and it's time to talk about Jim Bowie some more. I'm so sorry. So uh, it's debated by historians just how much the deaths of Jim's family influenced uh, his drinking, um, and it's also debated how much of a drunk he was. A lot of very pro-Texas types will argue that there's no real evidence that he had a problematic history with alcohol. Um I don't think this is true, uh, and it seems like most of the good historians, uh, even the ones who are kind of see him as a little bit of a hero, disagree with this. Uh, historian William C. Davis notes that after his family's death, quote, for the first half of 1834, Bowie largely wandered and may have surrendered to drink more than he should as he tried to regain his personal and financial balance. His old temper flared again, and there were fights. After one supposed brawl in San Antonio, he asked a friend why he had not come in to help in the scuffle. The man answered that, so far as he could tell, Bowie had been in the wrong in the encounter. Don't you suppose I know that as well as you do, replied Bowie. That's just why I needed a friend. If I had been in the right, I would have had plenty of them. <laughs> He's not wrong. No, he's not. I love that, though. He's not right, either. (laughs) That is some good frontier logic. Um, Yeah. So he spent most of the next year engaged in a series of land speculation schemes because, again, like he's rich, a rich boy for a while, but when his rich family dies, he doesn't inherit their money, right? Because he's like the son-in-law. So now he's back on his own again. Um, and unfortunately for him, the Mexican government had grown increasingly concerned about the fact that it had been giving away huge chunks of Texas to Americans. Uh, these men often flouted the laws of Mexico by, for example, bringing in slaves. And in general, it became very clear that they had no real interest in being part of Mexico. So Mexico began to crack down and restrict the kind of speculation and sale of land that Bowie engaged in. 
Now, luckily for Jim, right at about this period of time, a fellow named Santa Ana succeeded in becoming the dictator of Mexico in all but name. And like any good authoritarian, he set right to work clamping down on opposition to his regime, largely by shutting down local militias and ordering them to send him their guns. Zacatecas, which was one of the states in Mexico, rebelled, and it was brutally crushed. The whole situation resulted in a huge amount of unrest in other Mexican states, and we're not going to be able to detail all of it here. The short of it is that the capital of the Mexican state that Texas was in, uh, a city called Montclova, decided that they needed to raise money to get up militia in their own defense from Santa Ana, and they did this by opening up a huge amount of land for purchase. Since Bowie had been the governor's son-in-law, he was given the job of disbursing and selling all of this land, and since he was corrupt as all hell, he basically took a bunch of bribes for this, and he also got a huge chunk of that land himself. And by the time all of the chips had landed and all the land was so- sold, he owned more than a million acres. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is a lot of land. That's so... <laughs> Much. Even in Texas, that's a lot. Yeah. And basically, once Santa Ana heard that, like, the capital of one of his own states had given away this land, much land to a bunch of white people to raise a militia to defend themselves from him, he was like, fuck this shit. Uh, and he declared the whole sale null and void, which effectively wiped out Jim's entire fortune. Um, so Santa Ana sent an army up to Montclova to crack down on all of this blatantly criminal land speculation. And Jim Bowie and his friends like showed up to like protest uh, and they were immediately arrested and jailed. But they succeeded in escaping and fleeing back to Texas. Bowie made his way to Nacogdoches and became one of the loudest voices in the war party. The men who increasingly advocated the taking up of arms against Santa Ana's government. Well, I mean, that, that the war party is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I think we should have one of those now where like, we know what you guys want. They're not framing themselves as Texas independence advocates at this point. They're framing themselves as against Santa Ana's dictatorship. Like they're saying they want to return to the original Mexican constitution before Santa Ana took power. Like that's kind of where they are right now. Uh, And a lot of people for, cause like there's a lot of Mexicans and white people who are like kind of all on the same side of this. And it's because a lot of those Mexicans like don't like Santa Ana. Um, And then there's folks like Bowie who kind of, he doesn't really care politically about what's happened. He cares that Santa Ana screwed him out of his chance at becoming a millionaire. Um, So yeah, on July 13th, 1835, a hundred citizens of Nacogdoches declared themselves a militia and they vote Jim Bowie to be their Colonel. Um, Now he immediately, his first act as Colonel is to rob a Mexican government storehouse of muskets. uh, And the government considered this to be him inciting violence, which is a pretty fair way to describe. that's That's a good, that's a good way to call it. Yeah, it's very different from me stealing, for example, Toyota Land Cruisers. Uh, That's an expedition. You know, that's not inciting violence. Yes. So Bowie had to flee to the United States uh, to raise money and men. Uh, to to you know continue to to make this revolution possible, and he returned to Texas just in time for the first so- shots of the Texas Revolution to be fired on October second, eighteen thirty five. Um, now, there were a lot of other guys involved, and I'm not going to like for one thing. The Texas revolutionary history isn't my favorite kind of history, so I'm not going to go into wild detail about this. But yeah, there's a bunch of people, and at the beginning, they just kind of want to go back to the way things were before Santa Ana, and it gradually evolves into a an independence movement for Texas to become an independent nation, right? But it doesn't really start that way. Um, and it's a very democratic sort of movement that that that's, that spot like pops up so these guys are all voting like it's all guys women can't vote obviously neither can enslaved people um but these the men all the white men all vote for their leaders and a guy named stephen f austin is elected the commander of the texas's new army um so by the time Bowie got back into texas from his little sojourn in the united states that army was about 500 men in size uh it continued to grow over the course of days and Bowie was named a colonel once again and given command of a column of about 90 men uh and he was a pretty good military leader uh which you might guess from the fact that he was just generally good at shooting people well killing people well that's what i was gonna say he knew how to kill animals and people and like a lot of killing animals is the same it's the fucking same when i started reading a lot of military strategy i was like this is hunting this is what this is Uh, yeah 
and especially like these are not gigantic Napoleonic battles. Like again, the army's like five hundred dudes. Like these are often confrontations between a few dozen people in the middle of nowhere, Texas, who like shoot at each other and like twenty people die and one side backs off first and it's a great victory. You yes. know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, and Bowie was a pretty good military commander. Uh, several weeks later, he led his men into battle against a Mexican army force uh, at a place called Concepcion, uh, and the force that he winds up fighting is like double the size of his own army, but he and his men win, and this is like the first great rebel victory of the war. Um, now, unfortunately, Stephen F. Austin was not a very good commander, and the Army of Texas was not a particularly orderly army, and a series of organizational and leadership failures stopped them from taking advantage of Bowie's victory. Uh, and soon enough, they wound up in a kind of clusterfuck situation. Um, so what's important to understand is that men kept deserting and kept stepping down, and eventually the army found itself having to hold another election to determine its commander. There are so many fucking votes with the Texas uh, like revolutionary army over like who should be in charge. Like they hold them all of the goddamn time. Every time something goes wrong, they're like, all right, who do we want to be in charge now? Um, yeah. well, I think they begot the libertarian part. There's a big aspect of that to this. And like the libertarians, they can't make up their mind about a goddamn thing. That's what it sounds like. That's that's, yeah. that's the exact metaphor I was using. I was like, it just sounds like it's just like the libertarian party. We're like, hey, I don't like how you're doing stuff. Change it. So Bowie campaigns hard to be the commander of this army, and they hold a vote, and he receives five votes. Um <laughs> And this is generally because people didn't really like him. He was considered to be like a pretty good combat commander, so individual people were willing to follow him in the bat follow him in the battle. But he was also like known to be he was a guy with like a gigantic temper who was drunk yeah, a, a lot of the time. He's a yeah. tough hang. Tough hang. Tough hang. So he gets angry that he loses this vote and he resigns his commission and like announces that he's becoming a private again as kind of a fuck you to Stephen F. Austin. And then he just leaves the army entirely and he travels to San Felipe where he meets with Sam Houston. Now, another election had been held recently and Houston had been made the major general in charge of all of Texas's armed forces. So Austin was reassigned and the army now had no actual field commander. So it had Houston in charge of it, but like nobody had been voted to actually lead it into battle. Um, and Bowie, like, basically tries to ingratiate himself into Houston so that he can hopefully get appointed to be in charge of the army. But he can't really get a handle on his drinking. And by the time he and Houston actually meet for the first time in San Felipe, he is, in the words of one attendee, dead drunk. Um, and Houston is kind of like carefully like, well, I'm not going to just appoint you in charge of the army. Why don't you go back and the whole army will hold another vote. And now that Austin's out, I'm sure they will elect you to be in charge of the army. So still wasted, Jim Bowie drunkenly rides back to the army and he keeps right on drinking throughout the election. He actually gets blackout hammered on the night of the vote. Um, and for some reason, <laughs> his fellow soldiers decide to give the job to another guy. No um, way. reading historians talk about this it's really funny because they'll often be like it's peculiar that they didn't vote for bowie despite his good combat performance and it was like well because they saw he was wasted every time he wasn't in a gunfight (laughs) and that's i mean you gotta be a pretty bad drunk for other people for other soldiers to be like ah that guy yeah he, he drinks a lot Yeah, these guys are like patient zero for libertarianism. There's literally no law because they're revolting against legal authority and they all have guns in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, this guy is too much of a drunken ruin for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, he just he didn't doesn't do well in elections. So he is, however, given command of another unit of several dozen men, and they perform well in a number of skirmishes against the Mexican army. And again, as a rule, when he actually gets into combat, Jim Bowie does a really good job. He's good at leading men in battle. You got to give him credit for that. That's his wheelhouse. Um, he does. Yeah. yeah, that's how he grew up. Yeah, if you want someone to help other people kill a group of strangers, Jim Bowie is your fucking man. Yeah. He's a good stranger killer. Any anything other than that, he's gonna be drunk. Yeah, but. he's he's not even good at land speculation. He just does it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't think he knows he's doing it. We think he's no. in a blackout the whole time. He, he's just wasted the whole time. Yeah. So uh, at one point during the war along the San Antonio River, Bowie and his men heard a rumor that the general of the Mexican army uh, was grazing his horses nearby. And this wasn't Santa Ana yet. This was like the Mexican army before Santa Ana comes up. 
So they set out to like figure out where these horses are so they can either steal the horses or disperse the horde because you know that the herd because that would do a lot of damage to the army get rid of all their horses. So while they're scouting around to try to find these horses Bowie and his men capture a random Mexican dude who claims to know the guy who was tending the herd and he told Bowie that if they found that guy they would be able to find the horses but Bowie isn't willing to listen to this he thinks this guy is lying and knows where the horses are so he arrests the man instead. And I'm going to quote from William C. Davis here. Uh, He writes, quote, One of the volunteers, uh, Placido Benavides, suggested that they tie the man, put a rope around his neck, and raise him by a tree branch, strangling him until he agreed to talk. There was nothing surprising in that for Benavides. He was one of the Ricos, the wealthy landed local aristocracy, like the Veramendes, the family that Bowie married into, who felt an ancestral cultural contempt, or at best disdain, for the pobres, the poor. Thus, for Benavides, there was no dishonor in torturing a peon for information, especially if he was working for the enemy. Bowie, who came from an entirely different culture that generally frowned upon such brutality, agreed to the suggestion. Perhaps his marriage into the Veramendis had brought him not just family affluence, but also family attitudes. The brutality, once commenced, almost got out of hand. (laughs) Almost got out of hand. (laughs) Bowie ordered a fire started near the tree, and then some of his men hauled the unfortunate man up over it, adding the double torture of burning. or at least extremely uncomfortable proximity to the blaze, to the strangulation. That's almost out of hand. (laughs) It was almost out of hand. This is almost too much, yeah. (laughs) At the same time, eight of his company stood with cocked rifles besides the fire, pointing them at the poor man. When the victim stopped kicking and appeared near unconsciousness, they let him down and threatened to shoot him. He refused to talk, and the whole business was repeated twice more, even though one of Bowie's men rebelled at the cruelty and refused to participate further. After the third time, the Mexican revealed the whereabouts of a herd of horses. Although Bowie's one rebel suspected they may have belonged to the man himself instead of the enemy army, and he gave them up simply to save his life. Even then, it seems, Bowie was not done, announcing that he intended to continue the torture the next morning, although what there was left to gain is a mystery. Now, thankfully, he doesn't go through with continuing the torture, this poor son of a bitch, um, but he does make the guy who'd refused to torture the prisoner guard him that night. This is like a punishment, because he's a dick. Yeah. Almost out of hand, Billy. Almost. Almost out of hand. Do you think like some of his friends like the next day were like, see, dude, this is what we're talking about. This is why we can't elect you in charge because you do stuff like this. You keep doing this shit, Jim. Nobody wants this guy in charge. Like, we're all pretty racist, but come on, man. (laughs) But come on, dude. So... The Texas Revolution had, as I said, started out against a revolution against Santa Ana, uh, and a number of the early revolutionaries were, in fact, loyal to the Mexican Constitution. Bowie himself professed a loyalty to it initially, but as the fighting went on, the cause of total independence took off, primarily among the white residents of the area, and Bowie got on board with this train. Uh, William C. Davis clearly believes that he did so out of a mix of patriotism and a healthy desire to get back all the land he'd stolen and then had stolen back from him. Um, I personally see... Jim and his participation is an even mix of land grab and an addiction to violence, but whatever. Honest men can disagree. In any case, Bowie's path through the war eventually led him to the Alamo in modern-day San Antonio. Now, the town around it was then called Behar, and the fort of the Alamo contained a large number of field guns, which was actually the vast bulk of the artillery available to the Texan rebels. As Santa Ana marched forth, because the army he had first sent in, they do eventually beat that army, so Santa Ana has to march up with a larger Mexican army, thousands and thousands of soldiers. And at first they think he's just going to send a few men to attack the Alamo, and they have plenty of guns to hold it, but then he sends like the bulk of his army there. Um, and they don't abandon it because all of the guns it has means that it's kind of critical to the war effort. And to make a long and pretty boring story short, eventually Santa Ana's whole big-ass army winds up marching on the Alamo, and the two men in charge of its defense were a guy named Colonel William Travis and Jim Bowie. By the way, Austin is in Travis County. Like, I was, I was going to yeah. say, I know how all yeah. that comes together. Yeah. yeah. So, the joke I usually do when I'm in Austin is like, it's just two of the widest names you've ever heard of. Just like, It's just somebody from Round Rock yelling at their kids. Austin, Travis, get in here. Get in here. Austin, Travis, Jim, Bowie, you get in here now. Get get in here. Yeah. Get y'all in here. Yeah, it's, 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 
uh, good old home state of Texas. It is, yeah. So uh, Bowie's rank of colonel had never really been real. Uh, he'd been elected by a militia and then sort of voted into or appointed into a couple of different command positions. But his troops were like irregulars. They were what was called volunteers. Uh, while Colonel Travis was a man with an actual military experience and his troops were like regular trained troops with like like they couldn't just leave if they wanted to like Bowie's men were kind of there as volunteers. They could fuck off at any point. Travis's troops were like normal soldiers. So yeah, once they arrive, you've got the the military at the Alamo divided into like regular soldiers under Travis and irregulars under Bowie. And Travis is ostensibly supposed to be in charge of the whole operation, but Bowie's men aren't willing to listen to this guy. They trust the dude that they've been fighting with more than some like fancy colonel with a fucking army degree. So the whole army holds yet another fucking election, and the two the the result of it leaves the two men sharing power. Bowie stays in charge of the volunteers, and Travis is in charge of the regular army and this is not a good state of affairs having the army divided into two chunks who don't listen to each other or each other's commander turns out that's actually not like an ideal way to army no no yeah Yeah. uh as davis writes quote no one was completely in charge bowie would not obey travis and travis certainly would not yield to bowie so the garrison divided into somewhat unfriendly camps on february 12th adjutant jj baugh saw that bowie availing himself of his popularity among the volunteers seemed anxious to arrogate to himself the entire control so he's trying to like he wants to take control but the next day the situation become intolerable precipitated mainly by bowie unfortunately choosing his election as an event worth celebrating with a two-day drunk so they have this vote that splits them in two and bowie just spent the next couple of days wrecked out of his fucking head. Robert, do you and know what else celebrates a two-day drunk? Me? Yeah. Wh- who else? Yeah, that's, I mean, quip the toothbrush people. Probably. 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 For sure they do. Sure, sure, sure. That's sure. why I like them so much. Uh, and also the other products and services that support this podcast, all big fans of being drunk for two straight days. Yeah. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth 
issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Oh, what a day. What a day it is. Yeah, so Jim Bowie, they've just held this election. They've split the control of the army in two, and Jim Bowie is just fucking celebrates this by getting shithouse wasted. Like, he's never succeeded in being elected to command of the army, but he's gotten elected to command of half of an army, and that's that's worth celebrating. So, drunk Bowie pretty much immediately let this new state of affairs get I was going to get, get drunk him. anyway. Might as well be happy about it. Yeah, might as well be for a good reason. So uh, he's wasted in celebrating his control of half of an army when he sees a group of local Bejarinos, like citizens of the nearby town, trying to flee the town with their property to avoid the fact that a battle is about to happen. And he arrests these people for no real reason. Now, at the same time, he also started randomly de-arresting people that the local judge had already sentenced for crimes. There seems to have been no real rhyme or reason for any of this, because he'd actually sat on like the judge panel that had convicted some of these friends these men when he was sober and then just decided to free them from jail at random uh when the judge complained about this bowie had his volunteers march through the main square of the town of behar to intimidate him unfortunately bowie and all of his men were wasted as one volunteer one volunteer described the marching in quote a tumultuously and disor and disorderly manner bowie himself and many of his men being drunk which has been the case ever since he has been in command so, like, he randomly decides to free a bunch of prisoners. The judge complains, and he has a drunken mob gather in the middle of town to yell at the judge. All this sounds, like, fine We're at to fun me. Bowie now. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I do think, yeah, he's got all his killing done. He's like, let's just mix it up a little bit. Let's yeah. just get wasted, buddy. So next, Bowie de-arrested a private in the regular army, a man that Colonel Travis had convicted of mutiny, for, again, no real reason. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This pissed Travis off, and he wound I up writing. It a, did. I bet yeah. it did. <laughs> he wound up writing a letter to their governor, and Davy Crockett also wrote a letter because Davy Crockett was there at this point, and he's really pissed at Jim Bowie's bullshit. Now, in his lever- letter, Travis complained that the situation was quote truly awkward and delicate due to the fact that his co-commander had been roaring drunk all the time and was turning everything topsy turvy. He ended the letter by stating he would remain at the Alamo for the sake of honor, but, quote, I am unwilling to be responsible for the drunken irregularities of any man. I mean, that's going to cost him his life. Uh, That's what's going to happen. They're all going to die. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they don't know it. Yeah. Uh, Maybe Jim does. That's why he's hammered. So the situation continued to deteriorate, and Bowie's drunkenness grew even more extreme. His volunteer army turned into a multi-day-long keg party, and some of his men actually sold their rifles to buy liquor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like them. They sound yeah. fun. I'm not going to need this. You know what I haven't used this whole damn time? This. This thing. This fucking thing. This keg. So, 
one observer at the time reported most of the garrison was drunk. Uh, Travis kept on complaining about this, and the fights between the two men soon degenerated into an utterly untenable situation. Travis eventually had to leave the Alamo with his regular soldiers because he was afraid the two groups would start shooting at each other if they stayed together any longer. But then on Valentine's Day, Jim Bowie sobered up, and we don't really know why. He might have come to his senses, or he might have just trade out of, ran out of liquor and guns to trade for liquor. But, as Davis writes, as quickly as it arose, the problem seemed to evaporate, and that was probably due to Bowie. It is well known that he sometimes drank too much, recalled William W. Fontaine, who was one of the little children at Montville with Charles Travis, but it is not so generally known how quickly he hastened to make the amends honorably, so that he soon came under the influence of, as soon as he came uh, out from under the influence of liquor. On February 14th, Bowie sobered and apparently went on to see Travis and gave an apology, for immediately Travis and his command returned to San Antonio, and all signs of friction between the two disappeared for good wow yeah he's a charming guy i guess i mean that's real charming when you have to move an army because you're so drunk and then you go and you're like hey 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 shit got wild didn't it i apologize for that (laughs) are you still mad are we cool in retrospect i was drunker than you should be while commanding an army i see that now i see that it's clear to me now also, can I borrow some money? We need to get our guns back. Yeah. Now, other sources I've read suggest that the reason Bowie chilled out, maybe that he got sick with yellow fever right around this time. Uh, he definitely got sick with yellow fever. It just kind of is up to debate what that had an impact on. And his illness was probably due to a combination of poor sanitary conditions at the Alamo and the fact that he'd been on a multi-week alcohol bender, which is bad for your immune system. Whatever the truth, by the time the Battle of the Alamo started on February 23rd, Colonel Travis was back in the fort and Jim Bowie was confined to a sickbed, unable to command or fight. Uh, and I'm not going to detail out the battle for the Alamo. Everyone listening to this knows the broad strokes. The Texans got wiped out. They killed a lot of the besieging Mexican army, and that provided the Texan revolutionaries with a powerful rally and cry, yada, yada, remember the Alamo, all that bullshit. The actual reality of the battle is less glorious than what I was raised to believe in school. You know, we were told that thousands upon thousands of Mexicans had been killed by the defenders. That's almost certainly bullshit it is probably to say that they on balance fought competently and acquitted for themselves pretty well but there it was never a close fight you know they were horribly outnumbered and outclassed uh now for some amount of time it was de rigueur for patrick patriotic retellings of the story of the battle to invent a heroic end for all of like the main figures you've got you got william travis you've got bowie crockett you've got jim bowie all these famous guys are at this fight and they all have to die heroic deaths if you're doing like the um the propaganda retelling of this right yeah the mythos The, the most famous painting of jim bowie at all is him at the alamo leaping out of his sick bed and shooting a pair of mexican soldiers with a brace of pistols that he's concealed under his bed um and that's kind of the <laughs> like the the picture that a lot of people like to portray him uh like how he went out as uh, i found a passage from 1957's jim bowie james bowie big dealer which is an article about the man's life that kind of gives you an idea of how his last days are portrayed by the the pro bowie crowd For Bowie not to have his knife at the end would be unthinkable. David Crockett had arrived before Bowie became critically ill, and Colonel Crockett's exploits and adventures in Texas, a farrago of undetermined authorship that rings true to Crockett only in spots, is this passage. I found Colonel Bowie in the fortress, a man celebrated for having been in a more desperate personal conflict than any other in the country. He gave me a friendly welcome and appeared to be mightily pleased that I had arrived safe. While we were conversing, he had occasion to draw his famous knife to cut a strap, and I wish I may be shot if the bare sight of it was wasn't enough to give a man of squeamish stomach the colic, especially before breakfast. He saw I was admiring it and said, Colonel, you might tickle a fellow's ribs a long time with this little instrument before you'd make him laugh. Now, this story never happened. Bowie, no. Cro- Davy Crockett never wrote this. Uh, Crockett actually probably hated Bowie because we know he wrote a letter complaining about his behavior. Um, and the book that this is being quoted from was written by somebody else just in Crockett's name to capitalize on his legend. And there is no evidence whatsoever that his famous knife was ever used, even as like a camp tool in the battle, especially since Bowie was too <laughs> sick to get out of bed. Um, yeah. And it, 
the 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 task of trying to unravel exactly how Bowie died is difficult, both because of the hero worship around him and because of the network of grifters that arose around the Battle of Alamo. The most famous of them was Mad- Madame Candelaria, a woman who, in her old age, claimed to have been Bowie's nurse during the battle. She made a sizable living and secured a pension from the state of Texas by providing patriotic Texans with heroic stories about how Travis Bowie and Crockett all died because she claimed she'd been there. There's no evidence that this is true, and her stories about what happened at the Alamo changed repeatedly over the years of her life. Um, I found a good article, though, in True West magazine that's you know attempted to co- collate all the different rumors of, of Bowie's end. Quote, According to stories spread after the battle, Bowie died either as a murder victim, a suicide, a battle casualty, or a victim of sadistic torture. He may have died fighting from his sickbed, helplessly in his sickbed, or of an illness before Mexican soldiers did the job. He may have been killed by swords, bayonets, gunfire, or fire. He may have died heroically or as a coward. One of the first reports to Sam Houston after the battle reported that Bowie was killed while lying sick in bed. Houston and others passed on this information, interpreting it to mean he had been murdered while sick in bed. However, Houston changed the story two days later, writing, Our friend Bowie, as now was understood, unable to get out of bed, shot himself as the soldiers approached it. An unidentified Mexican soldier expressed a different opinion in the April 15, 1836 uh, edition of El Mosquito Mexicano. Uh, he stated, The perverse and braggart Santiago Bowie died like a woman, almost hidden under a mattress. Alamo survivor Susanna Dickinson Hannig waited on the subject 38 years later. She stated that Bowie was sick in bed, and when Mexican soldiers entered his room, he killed two of them with his pistols before they pierced him with their sabers. Nothing in Hannig's statement indicates she actually witnessed this. Perhaps the most horrifying tale of Bowie's death came in 18. 18- 1882, when William P. Zuber, who popularized the Alamo's famous Line in the Sand story, told the tale of a young Mexican fifer, Apolinaro Saldinaga. Polin, uh, Zuber claims, witnessed Bowie brought out alive on a cot and placed before a Mexican captain. Bowie delivered a short patriotic speech to the captain, who became so outraged that he ordered his soldiers to cut Bowie's tongue out and hurl the still-living man onto the Texas uh, Texan dead's burning funeral pyre. So, these are the different stories. We will never know which of these is true. Um, we do know pretty well that he had yellow fever. So one thing we can all safely assume is that however James Bowie went out, he died with the symptoms of advanced yellow fever, which are uncontrollable diarrhea and vomiting. So that's, that's, that's the story. (laughs) Wow. Wow. A fitting end to a frontier hero. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm not super shocked because I assume everyone starting about 150 years ago back just had constant diarrhea so yeah yeah he was he was sick and yeah 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 but it sounds consistent that he was in bed like both sides he was definitely in bed seemed to say he was in bed some say like i was being real pussy about it and other side but no he kind of fought but he wasn't laying down yeah it would have been hard for him to um have done much fighting with the yellow fever. It's pretty crippling. So yeah, that's the story of old Jim Bowie. That's, I mean, I'll be honest. I never thought if you, if you have a weapon named after you, your life was probably rough. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of, not a lot of peaceful lives wind up with weapons named after them. He was just a great diplomat. Uh, no, yeah. no, he's, <laughs> he didn't like to argue. Yeah, we probably should have a weapon named after Henry Kissinger, but I don't think there's any weapon system that's killed as many people as Henry Kissinger, so, yeah, I guess so. War crimes, isn't that what it is? Yeah, yeah, we could just name the concept of bombing people the, the Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that is the motherfucking story of James Bowie. How are you feeling about Old Jimbo. Jimbo. I, there was there was more Louisiana mm-hmm. than I than I had anticipated. A lot of that, which makes more sense about like who and how he gets that name. I mean, but I like I think my favorite part is just how everyone in his family capitalized on his fame. Yeah, yeah, they would continue doing that well after his death because uh, it was easy and made him a lot of money. Such an American thing, too. Yeah, yeah. They're the first Duck Dynasty, is the Bowie family. Well, and I kept, I keep thinking of, I've been to Buffalo Bill's gravesite in several different locations. 
So I keep thinking of that kind of stuff too, where it's like, oh, it is. It's like Jesse James hit out in every. Oh, you mean you, you mean Wild Bill Hickok? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. No, not Buffalo. Did I say the guy for like put the lotion? Yeah, the, in the, with the lotion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wild Bill. Sorry, but yeah, I've been to his several of his uh, graves, which always makes me laugh. Yep. But that's like that kind of mythos that happens. Yeah, that's kind of what you get. So. This has been the episode. Billy, you got any pluggables you want to wanna throw down? I Just find me on Twitter at Billy Wayne Davis or on Instagram at Billy Wayne Davis. Uh, and I have a podcast out called Grown Local that is about the people and the communities that make up uh, just who, where your cannabis comes from. And the first season is about Eugene, Oregon. Check out Billy Wayne's Cannabis Podcast. Pick up a Bowie knife. Um, and uh, follow us on BehindTheBastards.com and at BastardsPod on Twitter and Instagram. And check out my new podcast, The Women's War, which is uh, about people who aren't uh, piece of shits like Yay. James Bowie uh, and are cool. Yeah. So that's the episode, motherfuckers. Wash your hands. Goodbye. Yeah. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.